clarification, we've kind of gotten lazy. When we uh, leave for Children's Church, you guys come up to the front and follow your fearless leader out this door. There's your fearless leader. She's, she's coming. Um, yeah, we do that. One of the reasons that we do that is, is for security reasons. Um, if you're maybe you're familiar with this place, most of I look around, you guys are all familiar with this place this morning, but you know, say a new person comes and they're like, man, I wonder what's happening to my kid right now. It's good to be able to see your kids walk out that door, know that they're going to go right across that classroom, right into an, another place. And so um, that's why we do it. So yeah, we'll keep working on that. Um, worship team. Thanks for choosing that last song. I tell you what, this time last year, my, my wife would be in bed in the morning, and she would hear the first thing that I did when I woke up was play that song, No Other Name. I'd sit in my chair there, and I would just let the words of this song wash over me and wash over me. And I, I mean, I did it almost every morning, probably annoyed my family. I was like, I was amazed at how Nate just picked it up this morning. He probably picked it up by osmosis because he's sleeping and hearing this song in the morning. But uh, thank you for that song. There is no other name besides Jesus. Um, if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 61. And if you haven't been with us um, yet, we are looking at the prophecies of Isaiah, um, kind of leading up to this this. This idea of, of, of awaiting this Messiah, this King, this Savior, Jesus. And so two weeks ago, we looked at the sign of the Savior. Um, we looked at that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, where it says that, that the Lord himself is going to give you a sign. Um, the virgin's going to be with birth, and you're going to call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It was something that we saw that was kind of a maybe a near prophecy um, for Ahaz and, and Judah, but also a far prophecy that we know was fulfilled when Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. And then last week, Drew preached on the character of this Savior. Um, man, our God is powerful, right? Our God is powerful. He's, he's a personal God. He's our Father. He's our Counselor. And God is our peace, right? God is our prince of peace, bringing peace to our hearts. And so um, this morning, we're going to look at the mission of this Savior, the mission of Jesus Christ. Why was Christ born? Why is it important that Jesus came to us? And what was it that Jesus came to do? Now, in order to, do, in order to really set the stage for this, in fact, let's, let's go ahead and read the text right now. And then I want to set the stage and give you a little bit of history. Um, and then we'll bring it to Jesus. So Isaiah chapter 61, it says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. 
wow, this is, I'm excited to preach this text. This is a powerful text. There's some beautiful imagery in here that I, I just can't wait to share with you. But to really set it up well, I think we have to go back and, um, and look at the nation of Judah and find out what was happening and probably actually fast forward about 100 years um, to when this prophecy would be fulfilled in the short of it. And then we'll look, the, we'll look at the long game and see that this prophecy was fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Um, I need to correct something that I said two weeks ago. Um, while it was true, and while it is true that, that Hezekiah was the, the king, he was the, probably one of the greatest kings of, of Judah who stood up to the Assyrians and basically said, hey, we're not paying tribute to you, you anymore. Um, I think I made it sound almost like that was a breeze. Um, that was not a breeze, by the way. Hezekiah had to, went through incredible um, persecution. That, you know, there was constant, like, the Assyrians were on top of Jerusalem. And, um, and things kind of came to a head um, when the Assyrians basically delivered an ultimatum to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, Hezekiah went, basically stood up to the Assyrians and, said, and went to the Lord in prayer. And said, God, we don't want to be in captivity um, to the Assyrians. And God, we need your help. And the beautiful thing was is that God answered the prayer of Hezekiah. And we know that when the Assyrians left that meeting, God caused this, this <laughs> caused the, well, he sent the angel of death. <laughs> and... Um, and the angel of death literally slaughtered 180,000 Assyrians, so much that it decimated their army that they said, you know what, we're not going to go against Judah. And they enjoyed kind of peace, if you will. They had a lot of bad kings. Um, but they did enjoy a sense of, you know, they weren't captive like Israel was to the Assyrians. Um, now fast forward. You know, unfortunately, the nation of Judah continued in their sin. Um, they continued to carry out the things that were prophesied. Isaiah prophesied those things in the first five chapters of Isaiah. If you get a chance, read those sometime. Um, and so I want to take you now to the captivity of Judah. I think it's important. And so if you're familiar with Jeremiah 52, um, you will find out what happened to the nation of Judah and where they found themselves, and why this prophecy was so important to that nation. So eventually, um, the Assyrians are defeated by the Babylonians. Um, but in Jeremiah chapter 52, we read about the fall of Jerusalem. You see, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, you know, he was, he was during Daniel's time, right? Daniel was taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Nebuchadnezzar camped outside of the city of Jerusalem for two years, um, laid siege. You know, you know kind of like the Lord of the Rings where you see these, these siege ramps and these, these walls put up around the city and they're constantly trying to siege, you know, take, lay hold of the city. Um, eventually, after two years, uh, Judah was, was starved. There was, there was no food left. There was famine um, in Jerusalem. And so... So much that there was no food to eat, and so at the time then, the army said, well, we're going to have to flee. And so, as in every great, great 
city, there's always a way out, right? And so they sneak through the back doors thinking, ah, we're going to escape and we're going we're to run away. Well, the Assyrians, well, excuse me, the Babylonians, i got to get this right. So the Babylonians laid, basically took their army captive. And uh, when you read through Jeremiah, you'll see that, that um, they, they took the army, they captured their king Zedekiah. Um, Zedekiah's sons are executed um, right in front of him. And, and then, just to, to put the exclamation point on it, they, they gouged Zedekiah's eyes out and took him into captivity and left him in prison until he died later in Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar sends uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, to Jerusalem to completely destroy the city. Um, the temple was set on fire. Every important building was burned to the ground. They took all the furnishings of Solomon's temple, um, and they just basically dismantled everything that was built there. Solomon's temple was completely, no stone left unturned, and everything was completely burned. They took so much bronze away that the scripture says that it was more than what they, than what they could even weigh in bronze. Um, and then they, they took all the influential leaders that were there in Jerusalem. They took them with them, brought them before the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and had them executed. Um, and so you've got to kind of paint that picture. And then, oh, one other important detail Jerusalem's wall was completely taken down. No stone left unturned. And so here, I tell you this to set the context for this passage, right? This is the, this is the context of this good news. Um, so here's a, a people who are decimated, completely broken. 4,000 of them were taken in captivity um, to Babylon, Another probably 50,000 left to just find their way. Their city is completely burned. Their temple where they would worship, completely destroyed. You can imagine the despair. Imagine the ashes. Imagine the, the, the ashes of still the smoke rising, if you will, and these people sitting in the ashes. Now I had to ask myself, so Why? Why, God? Why are these people in captivity? You've got to go back to the beginning of Isaiah to see, to see why. Isaiah pronounces this prophecy of judgment on Jerusalem and Judah. As a nation, they had completely denied God. God had been faithful to them years and years. He delivered them from the hands of all of their enemies and oppressors. And yet, they put God at arm's length. He was one of many gods on the shelf. They'd been influenced by Eastern religion. Their houses were filled with idols. They had amassed, this, this nation had, had amassed great wealth. They were trusting in their money instead of God. Which, by the way, is why God probably wrote in Deuteronomy, hey, your kings shouldn't take a bunch of horses. They shouldn't take a bunch of money. They were filled with pride, so much so that when you read Isaiah chapter 3, you'll see that it says this, they parade their sin like Sodom. They don't hide it. 
Go on and read in Isaiah chapter 3. They're haughty. Their women are prancing around with flirting eyes is the way that it's described. And God says, I'm going to take away your beautiful crowns. I'm going to take away your beautiful headdresses. You're going to be sitting in ashes with nothing to cover your heads, bald, the sun beating down. You see, it's because of their sin that the nation of Judah sat in poverty. They sat in prison. They sat in captivity. They sat in despair. (laughs) This text is about the mercy and the grace of God, not just for them, but for you and for me. Our God's mission to us is grace and mercy. They, they weren't left without hope. Isaiah's prophecy would be like light to their darkness. So much so that we know that part of the fulfillment of this prophecy happened. When you read the book of Nehemiah, maybe you remember the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah shows up. He gets report. He shows up in Jerusalem. And here are these people sitting in trouble and despair, no hope. They'd survived the exile, and so Nehemiah himself goes before God. You remember Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1? Nehemiah, Nehemiah humbles himself before God and says, God, we've sinned against you as a nation. God, would you give us favor? God, would you restore us? And God answers the prayer of Nehemiah. God answers the prayer of the humble in heart. And we know the story, don't we? You know that story? Nehemiah comes in, and he goes back to King Cyrus, and, and, the, and Cyrus gives, says, you know what? Whatever you need to rebuild Jerusalem, I'll give it to you. Ezra comes on the scene, rebuilds the temple, They're rebuilding the walls, which culminates in this beautiful worship service in the middle of Nehemiah. They're reading the law, and people are brokenhearted over their sin. They're weeping, and they're praying. And God does something wonderful. He restores. There's the history. Think about this now. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord's on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, those sitting in ashes, to proclaim freedom for those who are in captivity, a release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. How does Jesus fit into all of this? (laughs) Where does Jesus come in? Man, turn to Luke chapter 4. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn over to Luke chapter 4. So Jesus, um, he's become, um, 
Well, he's just went through the temptation from the devil, and he's entering his public ministry, and the Spirit of God is on him. He is anointed by the Holy Spirit. He is, he is well, he's God, and I want to say he's God's man, but he's, and he is the God man, but he's, he's God, and the Spirit of God is on him. And, uh, and so he's preaching around in the synagogues, and, and people are going, wow, listen to what Jesus is saying. Jesus shows up in his hometown of Nazareth, and um, as is custom, he would walk into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And in, in verse 16 of Luke chapter 4, we pick it up. He went into Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. How do we know that this prophecy from Isaiah is about Jesus? Because Jesus says that it is, quite honestly, quite frankly. Jesus says that it is. And so when I look at these words and I think, these things apply to us. This mission that Jesus was on, these things apply to us. And I want to apply them to your heart because the truth of the matter is, is that we're all poor, right? We've all experienced this prison. We've all been in captivity. We've all, we've all been in spiritual blindness, our eyes blinded by our sin, much similar to the nation of Judah. So much so that we need a Savior. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ's mission was to rescue the poor in spirit. That's the first thing I just want to talk to you about this morning is that Jesus came to rescue the poor in spirit. He came in the power of God, it says there, that the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he's anointed me. Jesus came in the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus preached these words in the synagogue, he's preaching on the authority of God and the authority of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, oh, and by the way, I'm going to be the one that's carrying out this mission through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And really that summarizes everything else that we look at here. Poor, are we talking about money here? <laughs> no. We're talking about the poor in spirit. We're talking about those who have nowhere else to go except God. Those who are sitting in the ashes of, of, of life that, that, that leaves us. Those sitting in burned down Jerusalem, so to speak. Jesus says, I've come. Spirit is with me, and I've come to preach good news to you. There's good news for the poor. 
the lowly, the needy, those who are afflicted. You see, Jesus comes for us. He comes for the the outcast, the downcast. He comes for those who have been passed over, those who know that they're sick and know that they need a doctor. Jesus is here. Jesus came to rescue you. Jesus would say it this way in in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For what? For theirs is the kingdom of God. And notice how Isaiah says that he's going to do this. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to bind up the brokenhearted. Right? Isaiah is speaking these words to people who are about to see everything they know and love fall apart. The temple is going to be destroyed. Everything that that would be gone here, and they would find themselves deported to another country. He says, I'm going to come, and I'm going to bind up the brokenhearted. That word brokenhearted there is interesting. That word is the idea of those who would rend violently. Think about it for a second. The brokenhearted over what? Over their sin. See, their eyes are open, and they're going... Jesus, I'm crushed by the weight of the sin. I've been quenched. I've been beaten down. Sometimes it's not necessarily even the sin that we're doing. It's the sin against us. And he says that I've come to bind up the brokenhearted, those who are, who are rent violently. Who are weeping and broken over their sinfulness. Jesus says that I'm going to release from darkness the prisoners. He's going to open eyes that have been blinded to their condition, the spiritual darkness. He says, I'm going to open your eyes. I'm going to heal the eyes of the blind, physically and spiritually. So often Jesus would do that in his ministry, wouldn't he? Remember the man that was blind? Jesus heals him of his blindness, and and, uh, he did a whole lot more than that, didn't he? Jesus does that for us. He says that I've come to uh, proclaim freedom for those who are captive those who are held in captivity by their sins. Oftentimes we find ourselves in the bondage of sin and we can easily tell ourselves this, you know what, I did this to myself, right? And I'm going to get out of this myself. (laughs) Folks, it's not how it works. You can't get out of it yourself. You need a Savior. That's why Jesus came. Judah would be in and out of sin over and over. That's why the cross is so important. Christ would come and he would rescue the poor in spirit. Sometimes when we're in the midst of our own sinfulness, we'll say, well, God, why would you help me out of this? Why would you even care what I'm going through? 
God cares. We see it over and over in the Old Testament. There's a beautiful pattern here. Brokenness and redemption. It's a rescue story. Like Drew was saying last week. Christ came to proclaim freedom. To free you from your sin. God will not abandon you. God will not leave you destitute. He rescues the poor, broken-hearted prisoners from their darkness. You say, can God forgive me? Yes, he can. His grace is sufficient. And so Jesus coming as this baby is this beautiful picture of God's mercy, the beautiful picture of God's grace. Jesus is the proof of the grace and the mercy of God. It's not something we can earn or deserve. It's something that God does in his own strength and power. Even as Drew painted last week this beautiful picture of the character and the heart of Jesus. Jesus is mighty God. He is mighty to save. Jesus Christ is, we can relate to Jesus Christ. He's personal. He's a counselor. He's a father. That's the character heart of God that we worship. And he alone is our peace. If you're here this morning, you're trying to <laughs> do sin management in your life. I got news for you. It's not going to work. You need Jesus, and Jesus is your peace. He came to release prisoners from darkness. How does he do this? How can he do it? Verse 2 says that uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, Jesus came to release us from the bondage of sin. This beautiful idea here, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's that about? What does he mean? How many of you remember in the Old Testament the year of Jubilee? You remember that? God wrote into this law, this year of Jubilee. Now, I believe that the things that are in the Old Testament... Uh, yes, they did happen and they were true, but they're also, they're also pictures of a spiritual rea reality that's fulfilled in Christ. Jesus says, when he stands up in that temple, he says, and I have come to, to bring and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, a year of jubilee, the favorable year of the Lord. What happened in jubilee? All debts are forgiven. All debts were canceled. All land was returned to its original owners. The slaves were freed. And everybody was given a fresh, new beginning. Can you imagine what these people sitting in this synagogue were thinking? Well, we do know what they were thinking because they were like, that's a bunch of blasphemy. This, isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus had to do a disappearing act at the end of that text because 
everybody was angry, and they were like, this can't be true. You can't make those claims about yourself. And they went to drag him out and to take him off the cliff, and Jesus disappears, and he does it. It's a year of jubilee. It's the way of the Lord balancing the economy, if you will, keeping the rich from exploiting the poor. Now hear this, hear this. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you are living today in the spiritual year of Jubilee. Think about it for a second. You've been set free from bondage. Your spiritual debt to the Lord has been paid. For everyone who is in Christ in this room, you are living in the acceptable year of the Lord. The Lord's favor, His grace is upon you. And Jesus is the one paying the debt. Jesus is the one, He's the surety, if you will, that your debts have been paid. Jesus would become our substitute at the cross. <laughs> Say, I'm proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Not only so, but we know that, that between that time of resurrection, Jesus went and he preached to the spirits in prison, didn't he? Those in prison and captivity, he went and pro pro pronounced and proclaimed this kingdom that is now here. You and I are living in the year of the Lord's favor. We're living in the grace and the glory of God. Jesus came as a baby to bring that favor to your life. See that promise. Live in that release. Because he also says right after that, and to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Notice that Jesus cut short of that when he pronounced that in Luke chapter 4. That's where it ends. There is a day of vengeance of our God. I think maybe Jesus cut short to emphasize his mission of grace. But know this. There will come a day when God will judge the living and the dead. Scripture teaches that there is a day of the Lord. And if you read through, the, through Isaiah and the book of Isaiah, you will come to the day of the Lord. There is a day when Jesus Christ will come. And guess what? He's not coming as a, as, as a baby anymore. He's coming as a king. He's coming as the Lord of hosts to judge the living and the dead. The beautiful thing is that for all of those who are in Christ, that day of his coming is going to be the most joyous occasion that you could even imagine. There's going to be such a, a beautiful reunion. When we realize and we see the face of Jesus and we go, wow, it's even better than I could have ever imagined. And for those who turn their face away from God, who choose to reject God, it's going to be a terrible day. They're going to mourn. There's going to be mourning. There's going to be 
regret. Folks, today is the day of the Lord's favor. Don't miss it. Today is the day of salvation. The scripture says that. God came to rescue you. God came to rescue the poor in spirit, the humble in heart, those who would acknowledge their sin before God. He came to release you from that bondage. Not by your own works of righteousness that you do. It's not enough. But by his mercy, he saved us, washes us, redeems us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And my favorite part of this text really is in verse 3. Oh, my goodness. I just sat over and over reading this this week and saying, what can I say about this? Jesus came to restore what had been taken away. Look at this. Look at this. And provide for those who grieve in Zion. See those people sitting there in Zion in Jerusalem, weeping, destitute, in ashes. He says to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. And a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Man, they're going to rise again. They're going to be called oaks of righteousness. A planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. He's saying... I'm going to restore what's been taken away from you. What sin took away from you, I'm going to bring restoration. I'm going to bring healing. Instead of ashes, guess what? You get a crown on your head. Instead of mourning, you get the oil of, of gladness poured over your head, flowing down to your feet. Oh, and by the way, instead of despair, instead of nakedness, I'm going to cover your nakedness with this garment of praise. See the contrast in this text. Don't miss it. I was meeting with Gary this week, and we were talking on Friday, and he, he said that he had read somewhere that um, there's this idea of a wedding and a funeral here in this verse. Do you see it? Look at it for a second. This idea of a crown of beauty, the idea of the oil of gladness, this idea of this garment of praise. He says, I'm going to give you a, a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Literally, it's a headdress. Those headdresses that were taken away back in Isaiah chapter 3, I'm going to give you your dignity back. Think about it that way. I'm going to cover your head. I'm going to restore dignity to your life. The way that sin is eaten away at you, Jesus comes to bring dignity, doesn't he? Remember the stories. Remember what Jesus did. Remember Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. What does Jesus do there? He restores the Samaritan woman's dignity. He says, would you, would you draw some water for me? Wow. 
he gives her worth. She's like, whoa, why are you asking me to take this water? Jesus says, because I want to give you living water. I want to restore you. I want to give you some dignity. Think about the woman that was caught in adultery, left naked, standing around, all these men ready to heal, hurl stones at her. <laughs> Jesus defends her. Jesus picks her up out of the dirt and says, no one's here to condemn you? You know what? <laughs> I don't condemn you either, although he had the power to judge. I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Walk in the newness of life. Hey, this is your year of jubilee. Jesus brings a crown of beauty to us instead of ashes. Says that he gives us the oil of gladness instead of mourning. This is a beautiful picture. I was like, what is this oil? What is this about? Back in Ruth, chapter 3, in verse 3, Ruth was instructed, wash yourself, perfume yourself, and put on your best clothes. It's the idea, this, this idea of oil, is something that, that, it's the idea that a bride would do in preparation for a wedding, this oil of gladness. It's a symbol of health. It's a symbol of celebration. Jesus himself was described in Hebrews chapter 1 with the oil of joy because he loved righteousness. It's a metaphor for a wedding. Probably one of my favorite psalms is how good and pleasant it is, brothers, when we dwell together in unity and praise the Lord. He says it's like the, the oil pouring down on Aaron's beard, drenching the dew of Hermon, Mount Hermon, drenching him. It says, blessed is the one who has this kind of oil. He'll prosper in whatever he does. Jesus said it himself. He said, I came to give you life. We read it this morning. Someone read it. You read it. John 10.10. 10. I came to give you life and give it to you in abundance. That's the idea of this oil of gladness. He says that um, I want to restore and give you a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Jesus came to take away the spirit of despair came to give you this garment of praise. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking of the story of the prodigal son. Remember that story? The prodigal decides that he knows better than his father, takes his inheritance, runs away, runs off into his sinfulness, runs off and finds himself eating with the pigs. He realizes that he's sitting in the ashes. He's going, man, I had it. my servants had, had it better. My father's servants had it better than I do. The son decides to return home to 
humble himself before the Father, and his Father's running to him. His Father's saying, man, guys, we are going to have a celebration today. My son has come home. Can you imagine the look on the son's face when the father responded that way? Did that son deserve any of it? Not at all. And yet, the father killed the calf, gave him the ring, gave him the robe. Jesus came to give us back what we'd lost, the things that were lost in the garden. He says that um, they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Apply that to your own heart, your own life. You're an oak of righteousness. You are a planting of the Lord if you're in Christ for the display of his splendor. You see, this, this spirit of the, the sovereign Lord, this Holy Spirit, this anointing that Jesus had, this anointing that Isaiah had because he says, me there, do you realize that you have that same anointing, that same spirit of the sovereign Lord? Do you remember what, 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 they, what Jesus said after he was going back up into heaven? He said, hey, I want you to go and I want you to wait in this place because I'm going to pour out my spirit on you and you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I probably got that backwards, but you know what I mean. Guys, we're the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on us. These things apply to us. This is who you are in Christ. As believers in Jesus Christ, you have all of these things. You've been set free from the prison of sin. You're living in the year of Jubilee. You're sons and daughters of the King. You're adorned with beauty. You have this crown of beauty. The Holy Spirit has anointed you. The oil of the Holy Spirit, the gladness of God from head to toe. He's robed you in praise and glory. Sometimes we don't feel like that, right? Sometimes we find ourselves living in the ashes find ourselves living there and wallowing maybe in our despair, that is not who you are. And Jesus came to rescue you from that kind of living. You're an oak of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. As I was thinking about this, this story this week, I was studying this passage and... Um, Specifically, 61 verse 3, I thought about Joyce. Many of you don't know Joyce. Um, most of you, maybe you've known her only a few years. 
think there's a, there's a picture of this in Joyce. If you know Joyce's story, you know that um, Brenda, another lady at church, is not here all the time. She sits right over here when she's here. Um, wonderful believer in Jesus Christ. Sees Joyce in the middle of her despair, in the middle of her brokenness, in the middle of literally sitting in, in ashes and in, in heat. Brenda comes to her, brings dignity to her, along with many of you as a church. I'll never forget the day that um, Brenda brought Joyce to me. And we were sitting in the office before these were offices. And um, two chairs, and that's all there was in there. And here's Joyce. Despair. Broken. Beaten down. And I wish you could go back and see that picture and see Joyce today and where she's come, where she's come from. Jesus has brought dignity, the oil of joy, this garment of praise, if you will, to Joyce. And not because of me by any stretch of the imagination, because of many of you. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of grace. This idea of beauty this idea of gladness, this idea of praise. And many of you have similar stories. I could have told your story just the same. One of the things I love about Joyce is that uh, she comes into our staff meeting every week. She says, hey, if you don't want me coming around here, then don't park your car out in the parking lot. Well, there's nowhere else to park, Joyce, so I guess I'm going to park in the parking lot. She comes into our staff meeting every week. We get the Joyce report. And I tell you what, she has put on this garment of praise. She really has a thankfulness and a gratefulness in her heart. And as we were talking this week, and I said, man, I've been thinking about you in this text. She said, well, I'd like to stay, say something, and so... I said, you know what? This is a good opportunity for you to say something. And so, Joyce, this is your opportunity um, to, again, just say thanks and, yeah. Yeah. 
We love you, Joyce. We love you. Love you. Jesus loves you, too. You know that? I know. Okay. Okay. Uh, so. Well, we are saying the restoration of it. We just thank God and love you. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Amen pray. Father, Jesus, Jesus, we have nothing, God, without you. Jesus, without you, we're left in our sinfulness. We're left to ourselves, Lord. Jesus, thank you for the love that was poured out for us at the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and your mission to rescue us, God, from our darkness, to rescue us, God, from our spiritual blindness. And Jesus, that you would come and that you would bring dignity to our lives, Lord. Father, you would call us sons and daughters instead of subjects, Lord, to a king. God, you're so personal and so real. Jesus, I pray that you would speak to the heart, maybe, God, that's hard towards you. God, would you soften that heart this morning, God? Open our eyes, God, to see your worth, to see your beauty, to see your joy, God, that you bring us. Give us that spirit of praise, God, now as we stand and we respond and worship you, God. We love you, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Now let's stand as we sing.